0: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world, I am Russell Tovey.
1: And I'm Robert Zion
0: And this is Talk Art.
1: Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling avant-garde. Ooh. Yeah, and uh avant-garde because we are here today to talk about a very special location in London and it's billed by many as the original home of the art world and when I first started getting into collecting and you know spending time with artists everyone was talking about a kind of shift from this location to East London and and there'd been this kind of very strong long-term history in one location in London which is in central London and it's called Cork Street have you been to Cork Street recently,
0: Ross? I've been to Cork Street lots. I, I we well, we'll get onto that, but I've curated a show at Flowers Gallery on Cork Street, which recently closed, called Prismatic Minds. But I've always loved Cork Street. I think when I again when I was doing what you were doing, Rob, and I was starting to collect and get into the art world, Cork Street felt a bit stuffy, if I'm honest. When yeah. I first started going down there, <laughs> we had the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition. Uh, that was something that was always always been very exciting. But that area started to feel a bit. Yeah, like old-fashioned, like the art there that wasn't... The contemporary movement wasn't for me. But now, it feels like it is so exciting and vibrant and everything is coming back to that location it's not just that street there's burlington street next to it it feels like in the royal academy and then there's pace next to the royal academy it feels like that area is really regenerating
1: totally and the thing that's so brilliant about it is it's right in the heart of the wonderful city of london and it's so easy to walk to so if you're anywhere pretty much you can walk there yeah
0: piccadilly bond street oxford street you're very close
1: exactly green park and the thing about it is the history of it, which we're, we're meeting a guest today who's, it's her second time on Talk Art. We're a massive fan of hers. It's She's huge. an old friend of ours. But um, the reason we invited her to speak about this is because the history of Cork Street, I mentioned the word avant-garde, but honestly, it is where experimental... What does avant-garde mean, right? Well, it means kind of experimental, you know, uh, sort of people who are pushing the envelope with new ideas, you know, radical, unorthodox um, kind of artworks and pushing society and culture forwards. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art to discuss about the history of Cork Street, Louisa Louisa
0: Buck. Buck.
2: Hi, Louisa. Hello, hello. How lovely to be back.
0: It's so so lovely to hear your voice, see your face. It's just heaven. You are the best. Uh, For everyone listening, Louisa Buck is uh, a Cork Street Gallery expert, but she's also an expert on art as a contributing editor to the art newspaper, which you should all be downloading as an app on your phone to get your daily art updates. But she's also a critic, and she was a 2005 Turner Prize jury member. Hi, Louisa. Hello, This is so brilliant to talk to you. So you are, as I just said, you are an expert on Cork Street, that you've written many articles about the history of Cork Street. I think you know more about Cork Street than Cork Street does.
2: (laughs) Well, in in an earlier life you see, I studied art history and the art history that I really loved was 20th century art history and especially surrealism was my thing. And England, but but, but I was quite broke as a student so I couldn't afford to go travelling around to do my research. So I studied British surrealism and very quickly it became evident that British surrealism. Surrealism kicked off on the continent in about 1924. It came to England like so many things rather later in the day, art-wise, um, in the 30s. And where it was all at at that time was Cork Street, this funny little street then which wasn't all she-she and Mayfair in those days. It had businesses, it had, you know, all sorts of stuff. You had the rag trade next door. It was much more rough and ready. You know, people, real people lived there, not just posh people. And um, And Cork Street was really the centre of it all. And when I say of it all, of course, you know, back in those days, in the 30s, British art was still incredibly conservative. Mm. I mean, let's not forget the take on its first Picasso in 1933. And that was an early flower painting. When you think Picasso was kicking off at the beginning of the 20th century. You know, mm. it's pretty late in the day. But Cork Street was where it was at.
1: And I heard that through time, um, Cork Street's been a kind of location for innovation but also scandal, which we can chat about. In a oh, bit. yes, there's lots um, of shenanigans, yes. Yeah. But like you said, from 1925 onwards, it's been a location that has introduced major art movements to us all in the UK. And one of the first galleries was owned by Freddie Mayer from the
2: Mayer Gallery. This um, is it. And what's so brilliant is the Mayer Gallery is still there. I mean, yes. Freddie Mayer is no longer with us, but his son, James Mayer, still manages the Mayer, runs, runs the Mayer Gallery. It's it's now up on the first floor, but it came there in 1925. And there's a lovely quote I've actually got from the fabulous, um, now sounding along with us, London polymath George Melly, jazz mm. singer, surrealist expert. Mm. And he described Freddie Mayer as a Rubicon cigar-smoking bon viveur whose taste in pictures was equaled only by his enthusiasm for the race course. So he used to go and, like, have a little flutter in between promoting avant-garde art. But, you know, they started off showing, um, you know, a lot of British homegrown work. Henry Moore, Paul Nash, Ben Nicholson, but also showing, um, Max Ernst, Paul yes. Clay, Alexander Calder. So the Mayor Gallery were really the first guys on the block. And as is so often with the art world, once one person comes, other people start coming too. So the Redfern Gallery, who are still there as well. I mean, this is so brilliant that these galleries <laughs> yes. are still there. The Redfern Gallery then showed up round about 1936. Um, I'm not going to give you a long string of dates because it gets a bit boring, but there are some really great people. Then another great gallery that turned up in 36 was the London Gallery, boring name, great gallery. Now that was run. <laughs> that was run by this guy E. L. T. Messens, Edouard Messens, who was a very irascible Belgian surrealist, who was a big friend of um, Rene Magritte. You know, he of the Sususne Pine Peep, the pipes, the clouds. The, you know, the quintessential with Dali, one of the quintessential surrealist painters. Messens was his buddy, not such a good artist in his own right, but a great gallerist. And Messens set up the London Gallery in '36, and that became the headquarters for Surrealism in England. And so it had some great, extraordinary shows. And, of course, it wasn't just the art. It was also the performances, the events. They had a Surrealist um, Objects and Poems exhibition, I think roughly around that time, just after it had opened, where you had Julian Trevelyan reciting poems. You had this sexy woman called Sheila Leg. we'll be hearing a bit more about her later, showing a leg. She was the phantom of Surrealism, flashing her tattooed legs. And, you know, such bad behaviour, whiskey being drunk at midnight, shenanigans, the police came and also they made these extraordinary objects, these surrealist objects at the same time. So surrealism was kind of up and revving in 36 and then do you want me just to go banging on about a bit more shenanigans? Well activity? no, just
0: just explain for people that hear the term surrealism, what, what was the art movement surrealism? What okay defined well
2: it? you know you think surrealism now, you think melting clocks, you think you know fish, pipes, clouds, strange things happening, painted dreams. Surrealism basically kicked off in the 20s, as I said earlier, and it really came out of Freud. It came out of the writings of Sigmund Freud, the guy who invented psychoanalysis, the guy who said the subconscious was really where it was at, that actually your subconscious was as real and as important as your conscious, and dreams were really important. All this stuff was bubbling beneath the surface, and out of that came, I'm cutting very many long stories short, but out of that came an art movement and a literary movement where artists also said, particularly after the First World War, where man's wonderful, clever machine invention had just caused mass carnage. So everybody was very pissed off with just the world at that point. Mm. So they said, "Well, let's let's form let's form a, a, a movement first of all about a, a, out of nonsense." That was the Dadaists, and out of the Dadaists came the Surrealists. Let's form also a world based on the irrational, dreams, madness, art by children, art that was done automatically. Drawings that you did when you're off your face on drugs or drink because that was when your subconscious came out. So that was the beginnings of it. Then you had artists like René Magritte, Salvador Dali, who didn't didn't want to kind of dream on paper. They wanted to make dreams. They wanted to paint images of what they dreamed of their subconscious. And that's really kind of where we think about the melting clocks and the fish and all that of painted dreams. But I just want to say one quick thing before I end my surrealism lecture, which is that (laughs) which is that surrealism was also, they didn't just want to produce kooky artworks. They really felt they could change the world. It was a political movement, and they really felt they were revolutionary, they were communist, they were left-wing. They really felt that there should be a total upheaval of old institutional establishment, so-called rational stuffiness. Of course, the Second World War blew all that out of the water, but that was really what was going on. So wind the clock back to the 30s, and this comes chugging over to staid old England And lots of madness ensues and the great thing about Cork street was
1: also that because you're staging all these exhibitions and the artwork was for sale it was attracting like collectors to support all of these artists and to discover them because at the time they were like all a lot of them were, were not as well known as they're known now oh, you know damn right. and if it, you think of like i have a really nice idea of like peggy guggenheim like rocking down and you know seeing a, seeing some of those shows well before
2: heroes. peggy guggenheim came um actually what well, the big thing that puts stirilis on the map london gallery was chugging away with elt Messons and his buddies and mm. so some British artists were kind of corralled in. Someone like Henry Moore kind of stood between the two. He was a bit abstract, but also a bit subconscious and surreal. But this guy, um, Messons, and this, this terrific Englishman called Roland Penrose, who wasn't a particularly good artist, but he was a great kind of getter together of people. André Breton, the high pope of surrealism, called him surrealism dans l'amité, surrealism in friendship. And Penrose decided what Britain needed was a big you know, all 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 cylinders go um, show of international surrealism. So this took place in '36 as well, 1936, where Chaconia's is now on the corner of Cork Street in Burlington Gardens, and they all we came love over. They yeah. all came over. Salvador Dali, Magritte, Andre Breton was there in a green suit with his wife with green fingernails. I mean, extraordinary shenanigans at the opening. Dylan Thomas, the great poet, was serving cups of boiled string, saying to the people, "Want the hot or cold?" Um, William. <laughs> (laughs) Walton, the great composer, hung a kipper on a Miro. But in the backdrop of the shenanigans was these amazing works. You have all the big names of surrealism, Maxence, Miron, Masson, Dali, but also our homegrown lot as well. So we had Henry Moore. We had um, uh, the wonderful Eileen Agar, who's just been showing at the Whitechapel recently. Um, Many wonderful women surrealists, actually. Ethel Cahoon, Edith Swimmington. Not names that our listeners will probably know, but, incredible artists. Look them up, Mm. give them a Google. So there was an amazing mixture and Sheila Legg, the one I talked about earlier, she reappeared. She was photographed in um, Trafalgar Square with her face covered with rose petals, clutching a pork chop and she walked round the exhibition opening. Over a thousand people just came to the opening night alone. The traffic banked up. A thousand people? Yes, a thousand people and it was open through um, June. It was a heatwave June and everybody went kind of stir crazy for Realism And so this was all on Cork Street. Now, Peggy Guggenheim, the great collector, didn't actually come to that particular show that we know, but collectors did. There was this guy called Edward James who had a crazy house in Wimpole Street. He commissioned Salvador Dali to make a lobster telephone where you put the lobster <sighs> over your face. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, you know, he was an extraordinary guy. His house in Wimpole Street, he had the footprints of his um, of his Russian wolfhound embroidered, I'm sorry, woven into the carpet of his of down the stairs. And talking of Russian... I wolf- love that. And talking of Russian wolfhounds, another event at the Surrealist Exhibition, a bit after the opening night, was Salvador Dali, who dressed up in a diving suit, yes. one of those real old-fashioned diving suits, holding two wolfhounds that probably did belong to Edward James, the collector. Yeah. Um, and he gave the speech on some authentic paranormal phantoms and he was w- waving around and swaying and everyone thought this is Dali being eccentric. No, actually it was a heatwave, June. He was suffocating. They yeah. had to run around the corner to a hardware store and there still were hardware stores in Mayfair in those days and get a spanner and, and undo his helmet and he just you know literally honestly nearly died so that was no it's so crazy
1: yeah. and and I heard that it was a young poet called David Gascoigne who actually like rescued him from Absolutely. suffocating in, I think they called it a diving bell it's like that yes it was like one of
2: those old fashioned suits one of those big yeah, old big brown, bronze like an yeah, like exactly. astronaut
0: sort of helmet so honestly, say. Yeah. No, the
1: David other thing Ga- I I loved is that at that private view apparently um, Dylan Thomas uh served cups of tea to all the guests. I mean I no, the Cups string. of
2: boiled string saying, did you want them hot or cold? The boiled <laughs> string. It was absolutely boiled string. And David Gascoigne was this kind of prodigy poet, a young, brilliant Englishman, fed up with all and gay, I think too, fantastic guy, totally fed up with the horrible, stringent English. And he wrote amazing poetry, you know, so there were great things happening there. Mm. And so, Peg, sorry, Peggy, Peggy Guggenheim. Guggenheim. Yes, let's get on to
0: <laughs> Peggy Guggenheim. So she came in 1930. We love Peggy. I mean, she
2: came in 1938. Um, and because I'm such a tragic swot, I have to be picky about these dates because it's quite interesting. <laughs> because she was 40 by then, she was not remotely interested in contemporary art except for shagging the odd artist. Um, she basically was a literary person and she was having an affair with this young unknown called some some guy called Samuel Beckett i mean mm-hmm. obviously goes on to be <laughs> one of the greatest figures of 20th century literature but he was this cute young guy she was having an affair with and he said why don't you get involved with contemporary art you know this is it's living it's a living thing she has some money she was coming to england she has had many other Unfortunate love Affair, She was sort of back in England to and fro, and she set up this gallery, um, the Guggenheim Gallery. It was above a pawn above a porn shop, pawn shop, P A W N, not P O R N.
0: that's down the road in Soho. Yeah, yeah. yeah
2: exactly. And um, and she her first her her advisor. I mean, she was so cool, Peggy Guggenheim, because she didn't know much about art herself at the beginning. But she got great advisors. And her first two advisors for this gallery it was Marcel Duchamp, the king of conceptual art. Um, then when she set up a gallery in New York. York, her advisor was Piet Mondrian, the king of abstract oh. art. I mean, so she knew how to get good advice, and and basically Duchamp said, why don't you have a show of Jean Cocteau, the great writer, the great kind of you know the poet, but also beautiful draftsman? She said, why not? Um, Cocteau at that point was lying around in Paris in a kind of opium befuddled haze, but she went and saw him in his opium befuddled haze, and he actually managed to muster up some rather extraordinary drawings, especially for the show on fabric. Now these unfortunately had nude gorgeous men, because it usually was gorgeous men with Jean Cocteau, um, showing bits of pubic hair above the fig leaves that covered their genitals. Shocking. Scandal. And they were impounded by London, by the customs at Croydon Airport, which is then (laughs) the main airport. So Peggy Guggenheim and Marcel Duchamp on the day of their exhibition opening in June 1938 had to go rushing to Croydon and persuade the customs to release these offending articles, which grumpy old British customs did, but they had to be hung in a back room. I mean, so, you know, it's, it's already more shenanigans. And also, those. like, Kandinsky had his first exhibition. Kandinsky had his there. first exhibition there. Str- Francis
0: Bacon was Francis, first seen there in a group show. Francis
2: Bacon. Not at not
0: a, not a, not a Peggy Guggenheim's, but on actual Cork Street. He was a yeah,
2: Mayor yeah. Gallery boy. He'd showed at Mayor Gallery. But um, Lucian Freud showed his first work at Peggy Guggenheim's. No a work way. That he did when he was a child, because it was a show of children's drawings. And it was an eight-year-old drawing that he'd submitted. He was a bit older than that then. But also, I think Peggy Guggenheim did the Kandinsky show to piss off Uncle Solomon, who, who founded the Solomon Guggenheim Museum, the one we all know, the big one in New York with the you know, mm-hmm. fantastic Frank Lloyd Wright building. And f- Uncle Solomon become very keen on non-objective art and Kandinsky. So Peggy had a commercial Kandinsky show and offered to sell Uncle Solomon a couple because she actually knew Kandinsky, um, wow. had met him. And Uncle Solomon was very sniffy and said, how dare you a Guggenheim be running a commercial gallery? I mean, as they made all their money out of commerce, I think that was a bit cheeky myself. But anyway, so yes, she did that first show. Eve Tongi, great surrealist artist who she was also having an affair with. I mean, Peggy did like to literally get to know her artists very well quite often, which I thoroughly applaud.
0: Yeah. When did she go to Venice? Was Venice after London then when Venice she moved was, there?
2: No, yeah, quite a way after London. She went, first of all, she went to, um, she, she then decided, basically, the, the, first, the first, 38 was not a great time to be setting up a gallery. I mean, the Second World War was, you know, brewing away. Just about to outbreak. And, yeah, it was yeah. just about to happen. The Nazis mm-hmm. were mustering, they'd taken over Czechoslovakia, you know, I mean you know, stuff was going wrong. And as a Jewish woman in Europe, it wasn't too cool for Peggy either, but she was fantastically brave slash foolhardy. She decided she wasn't going to have a, um, a commercial gallery because no, no one was buying art at this point. They were all trying to sort of survive. So she decided she was going to make a, a, a museum of modern art. She was encouraged by the great critic of the time, Herbert Reed, who became her consultant. And amazingly, she didn't sleep with him, one of the few she didn't. But he went round <laughs> advising her and she rushed round Europe again bonkers at that time, buying up art from Brancusi, from Max Ernst, from all these people. And I mean, getting them obviously at bargain prices, because these artists were delighted to be selling their avant-garde art. And this was all the art Nazis considered to be degenerate Degenerate. that would then be part, that would have been destroyed or put, you know, just, just... Trash. So she got this amazing collection together, got out of France. Just she put it in storage in a barn somewhere, and then long story cut short. Many long stories cut short. She got out, just got out. you know, at the very last minute from France, flew to New York with um, Max Ernst, who she quickly married when she got there. She saved Max Ernst, the, the artist, um, with Breton and all these amazing artworks that were brought in as um, household goods by the customs. And so then she set up a gallery in New York called Art of the Century. And then after that, many long stories short, she discovered Jackson Pollock, by the way, a few other things, um, in New York. And then she, sets, then she goes to Venice um, in, in the 40s.
1: I love her um, her autobiography. It's so brilliant. Oh, it's um, so funny. Now in the seventies, Cork Street had a whole other development, which um, obviously after
2: the war had gone and and there was a whole new era. Well, of it artists. shut
0: down for the whole war, didn't it? As yeah, well, it did. Yeah, yeah, everything it.
2: shut down. You weren't yeah. you weren't buying and selling art at that point, you know. And then also Surrealism went a bit wobbly because it's like after the Holocaust, <laughs> after the appalling devastation, you know, the sort of fannying around with your subconscious seemed a bit a bit irrelevant, really. So, mm. you know, it, it did very much kind of retrench. But as you're absolutely right, Rob, afterwards, of course, galleries started to reopen in the 50s and 60s, including the Mayor. Yeah, Gallery.
1: Yeah, and then by the 70s, some of my heroes were, like, exhibiting at the Mayor Gallery. So people like Ava Hesse, Klaus mm. Oldenburg, Andy mm. Warhol, Tom Wesselman. Like, there were so many amazing exhibitions even what? then as well. It's like those streets, when you walk on them now, you just, I, I love the romantic idea of thinking all the artists that your would have walked.
2: Absolutely right, you know, and I mean and, and James Mayer took over from his dad Freddie and James Mayer made a big alliance with Leo Castelli Gallery in New York right. and yeah. basically the Mayer Gallery became the sort of Leo Castelli's outpost in the UK. Yeah, like a London UK. outpost. Hence yeah. all these amazing artists, Warhol, all the pop artists and then also, you're right, ones like Eva Hesse, incredible artists who were, you know, not, not st- uh, strictly pop artists but, you know, all great artists because James has a great eye and still does. Mm. I mm. mean, I loved it because it was only gallery for many years, you're actually allowed to smoke all the private views over all <laughs> these priceless artworks, <laughs> chugging away on your fags. <laughs> around all the I mean obviously it's not allowed now at all anywhere but it was just like quite a wonderful thing they were just so kind of old school the Mayor Gallery and they still are and I don't think they'd mind me saying that they're just brilliant you know I saw an amazing Cy Twombly exhibition at the Mayor. Gallery oh yeah I mean, they, they, have, they have so many iconic um, moments in I mean they're stock, art, wow. they stock wow you know yeah, it's yeah, second yeah. to none but then you know it continues because Robert Fraser groovy Bob I mean the guy who was really kind of a harbinger of pop art and a fantastic figure I mean the famous you know Richard Hamilton of him and Mick Jagger going to to jail with a drug scandal all that i mean he had a gallery actually in dover street not in cork street but when he he went off and had a little um a few little addiction issues let's just say quite big ones um came back again reopened his gallery and he reopened it on cork street because that was the place to go you know Mm
0: -hmm. so i said in the intro that when i was getting into art it did feel a bit stuffy for a while, like for contemporary art I feel like it just sort of bypassed that area
2: Well this is what happened you see I mean I'm so ancient that I remember in the 80s it still was the place to go and then Victoria Miro had a space on there, the Flowers Gallery as you say the Waddingtons, the Mayor You and also don't forget the art world was a lot smaller, it was minute in the 30s, it was still pretty small in the 80s and the Cork Street party, the summer party was the party to go to I remember and they literally had people with clipboards either end of the street and they shut the street off and you had to be you know, gave your invitation. So of course all the young artists, it was already getting a bit stuffy and very white of course very man in pinstripe suitish mm. um, yeah. with a few exceptions um, so all the younger artists got really you know, uppity about this. The grey boys, the grey collective I remember did a whole riot and they, they went and they ran and these sort of gorgeous skinhead boys rushed through um, chucking grey paint over all the windows. Our lovely friends the neo-naturists um, the Binny sisters who've had great shows at the studio Voltaire recently, who are doing so many great things. But they they were very much in the 80s, naked, body paint, patchouli, slightly hippie, which of course was anathema to the sort of 80s. Think shoulder pads and red braces, you know. They turned up there and then stripped off, were wearing long fake fur coats, um, stripped them off, Have wonderful painted bodies with all their kind of gorgeous, voluptuous forms, all wrapped up in sellotape. And they rolled around on all the bonnets of all the cars in Cork Street, most of which were Rolls Royce, is owned by collectors. So that was all a bit of a laugh. But yeah, those are the glory days and things started to change. In the 90s, you know, the art world went to East. It went to Hoxton. It went to Shoreditch Mm. and Cork Street got very tumbleweed.
1: Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because there's a moment in the mid 90s where... Um, a really famous musician, David Bowie, actually did go to Cork Street and held an exhibition there. That show. And the thing that's interesting about it? that is that I, because Bowie's collection, um, I know Beth Greenacre quite well, who who kind of advised him a bit um, during yeah. his uh, more recent years. But um, I, I know that he was really interested in a lot of the artists that would have shown there, in you know, between like he 1920 loved Modern to... Modern British Exactly, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I have to say, I stuff, mean,
2: yeah. I am a number one Bowie fan. I mean, yes. I joined the David Bowie <laughs> fan club in 1973. Genius. I, I wept when he died. I've just, yeah. you know, he was. But I have to say, oh, thin white Duke, just stick to the day job of singing, you know, and do your <laughs> Nick Rogue, man who fell to earth. That art show was awful so it was, what was it, so was it? sketches well, of okay, it? It miniature okay, silver sculptures okay, okay, okay so the title was afro-pagan you wouldn't get away with that now would you um mm. there were sculptures of his gorgeous wife iman but very sort of a la african let's say like sort of traditional african sculptures but very looking very tribal sculpture style really problematic really iffy even <laughs> then um, he did Oh, he, they were his works. Out. Yes. Oh, my and God. And then you had Wallpaper. He and Dave Stewart kind of fell in love with Damien Hurst. There was quite a thing about all these old rockers really loved the YBAs because it made them all feel young and frisky again. Elton John, mm. Dave Britpop. Stewart. Dave yeah. Stewart wrote it. No, but that, that was younger, like Damien and, you know, Damien and Jarvis. And that was fine. They could do that. But these are the old guys. Right. You know, I remember Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics wrote a song especially for Damien saying, Damien, save me. I'll be your guide. I mean, it's so embarrassing. Right. But Anyway. But the, but the wallpaper, so you had Afro Pagan, you had Iman's heads, and then you had this terrible wallpaper of sort of vitrines with sharks in, repeating, and I think I think it was a Lucian Freud self-portrait was put inside a vitrine a, a glass box in this wallpaper. It was da- David Bowie sampling all the art that he liked and trying to make his own art. I mean, I don't care, I still love him, although he did get his teeth fixed, which I really hated, but that, that <laughs> art show on Cork Street. But what, you're right, you're absolutely right to single it out, because where did he have have it He had it on Cork Street. You yeah, know that was the place to have it.
0: So Flowers Gallery was talking about. I had a show there recently, uh, and Flowers Gallery took over from Victoria Miro when they moved east. So Victoria Miro. Well, there's been a lot uh, of shuffling
2: around, yeah, of different galleries, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's that's an amazing space. But wh- why do you why do you think that was the street for a while? Why do you think galleries started moving
1: there?
2: I think you know there was a it was. It was the West End. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, Chelsea was the sort of bohemian place traditionally, but I think it was because it was near. It was it, it was set, it was near the auction houses. I think that's possibly what it was as well. Mm. You know, Christie's and Sotheby's were nearby, and it was a place. You know, so there was art sort of in the ether, and yeah. I think you know there they were these. I mean, it was was also, you know, art's always been a luxury, let's face it, even when it was a lot cheaper than it is now. So you were in the sort of rag trade, you were in Savile Row, you were in Mayfair, you were near Piccadilly, you were near the Café Royal. You know, it was right in the centre town, you were near the louche, sleazy old Soho, so you could go off and get a bit of bad behaviour there. But I think it was just the sort of sheer convenience of it, actually, to be honest. I've always, sorry. No, no, go, go. I've always found it um,
1: quite like a hushed street as well. I feel like when you walk onto it, it's quite. Um, it feels quite special because it's, it hasn't got kind of like cars speeding past you or or shoppers kind of necessarily walking down that street. And because it is dedicated to a lot of, of galleries, it kind of is a bit quieter somehow. So if you walk down there, you, you sometimes feel quite special that you're going to sort of see an exhibition by yourself or whatever. Yeah, and it's if you quite
2: go... it's quite ordinary. I mean, I know the Pollen yeah. Estates have now used it up, and you know you've got the Goodman Gallery. In a, in a you know perfect sort of Richard Rogers designed um, you know space and all that, but or Norman mm. Foster, sorry, I think it's Norman Foster. But anyway, you know, so it's all become rather more she-she now. But mm. it's still quite kind of basic, you know. I mean, I think it's interesting. That it's actually got an order. There has to be like there has to be tailors in Savile Row. There have to be jewelers in Hatton Garden. There has to be galleries in Cork Street. And I think Pollen Estate has been very smart because they've got lots of people to do pop-ups like Studio Voltaire have done. Yeah, you were exactly. mentioning before we just before we went on air russell that you know freeze did all their performance mm. a year ago there and now you know they've got they've got a special outpost and we'll talk about that a bit in a minute probably yeah, but you know but... there's been a lot of encouraging to get the right to put it bluntly the right kind of gallery back on cork street yeah. and, and actually, the Pond and estate and
0: were... is, is the Pond estate is uh the, the primary private property owner so yeah. they're, they're, they're kind of spearheading the whole development because they want to you know bring more of an audience to the street they're really they're really behind it so as a property owner that they're actually investing back into themselves
2: They've been they've been really good, actually. I mean, everybody, everyone got a bit aghast at the beginning when it was all up for being developed, Cork Street. It had been very moribund, as, as we said, had been very quiet, very because Everyone had gone, you know, Hoxton, YBAs, East End, you know, stuffy old Mayfair. Who cared, you know? And mm-hmm. then and then, you know, and then it's, there was a story that it was, it was all being redeveloped. It was being rebuilt. Of course, there was much howling and gnashing of teeth about that. Um, but actually, you're absolutely right. They'd be very smart pollen states and very sensitive in that it became... There was, at some point during this time, it became a designated gallery area. There was a campaign for that, and that was established. So you couldn't do anything. You couldn't put Starbucks in there or whatever. You had to have galleries. But then Pollen Estates ran with that and made sure... And have done, you know, publications. They've encouraged pop-ups. They've given properties to people to occupy in all sorts of ways that, you know, make it possible for people to do interesting things there for very little rent. And it's... You know, if you're being cynical, you can say it's smart of them because, obviously you know, the kind of monkey gland of art, make it trendy, make it somewhere people want to go. But I, I'm not that. I think also it's it's a long, it's a long haul, you know, policy to get that done, to get people established. And they've been really conscientious about it. And there's some great things to be seen on Cork Street now.
1: And also lots of younger artists have been able yeah. to show their work. So they yeah. had Condo there in 2019, but also Russ and I were... Um, you know, shopkeepers at House of Voltaire, which helped raise money for Clapham, you know, I for was the a
2: excuse me. I was a shopkeeper dressed up in a Santa outfit for one <laughs> I love that. Sexy Santa. Had, with, two, with with take curator Lindsay in a, an elf outfit and Julie oh, Verhoeven, the wonderful artist, another elf. Yeah. We've all done our kind of crazy stuff. And what was great about that was the neo-naturists came back when Studio yes, Voltaire. Yes, they did. They came back to, to, to Cork Street yeah. and reprised rather more mature, um, uh, but, you know, still with, and that's even greater. So it was like, you know, 15, six year old women stripping off again and rolling around on the front of cars. I mean, how Fantastic. cool was that? That's Very heaven.
0: Cool. Well, but the Cork Street now feels really contemporary and on the pulse, and it is an art destination. You have got the Royal Academy, as we said, right next door to it. But the Cork Street does feel like it's vibrant again, especially now because at number nine Cork Street, there is now a permanent freeze gallery space.
2: This is it. They're, they're being... Very smart freeze, I think, because, you know, art fairs, obviously it's not been the easiest time for art fairs in the raging of a global, global pandemic but anyway I think even before Covid everyone thought god art fairs it's becoming such a kind of mad carousel so they've decided they're going to have a permanent presence they've taken over number nine cork street um, it's, it's a beautiful building big spacious and they're basically making it they're making the spaces available for other galleries to occupy so you've got um, th- you know three great great shows at the moment and um, you've got on the ground floor James Cohen projects from, from America from York. New York with Christopher Myers. I mean, amazing applique works. Um, he's, he's based in New York. There are applique works about this this girl, um, Sarah Forbes Bonetta, who was who was a young a young Egbado girl who lived in Victorian England. Basically, she was given by an African chief to Queen Victoria as a gift, and was both brought up as her goddaughter. And I mean, it's just creepy and horrible. And Queen Victoria did that with a few colonial. She had a kind of a child oh, from God. India, I think, was also given to so, her. I mean, it's just the most repulsive kind of colonial, right. disgusting, you know, legacy of horror. But he's done these extraordinary appliqué works depicting this girl, depicting Queen Victoria, depicting the chief. I like man, I like, you know, six foot plus man. I met him, makes gorgeous multicolored quilts. They're beautifully done, but also you've got the original letters from this girl, about marriage, about Queen Victoria, about her doubts, her anxiety about wearing the right clothes. Wow. I mean, it's so moving and so complicated. And yeah. so, because, you know, she was also sold by her own, or given by, given away by her own people. So, you know, it wasn't just the wicked colloquial. There was a lot of complicity going on. So it was, you know, I like a bit of complicated, you know, problematic stuff mm. in the middle of Cork Street, in polite old Cork Street. So that's on the ground floor. And then... Upstairs, you've got Prieto's *Ultra I'm sorry, I'm pronouncing it wrong. From Guatemala, and they've got the fabulous Vivian Suter, who had a show at Camden Arts Centre. Yeah, Yeah. fabric works. Yeah, so 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 good. Great big paintings hanging like a maze of hanging paintings, and her wonderful late mum, who she lived with, who came and lived with her in the middle of the sort of jungle, extraordinary life, um, making these beautiful collages. So they're there as well. And then Commonwealth and Council also has some great works as well. So that's you know. That's an exciting presence, I think. So that, and
0: that that opens now. That that opens for for freeze week.
2: Yes, it opens for freeze week, and then that stays up for a month. And then other galleries will come and occupy those spaces throughout the time. And then you've got, of course, the Saatchi dynasty continues. You've got, you know, Saatchi, Charles's daughter and her husband, Charles Saatchi's daughter and her husband. They're running a space there. You've got um, Holtemann Fine Arts, the the wonderful Marianne Holtemann has got some great, extraordinary twisted metal sculptures uh, made of um, steel... A disused steel sculptures from the old American embassy in Norway. I mean, that's a good bit of provenance. Made into kind of weird, twisty, mad sculptures. One of which is also in Regent's Park in the Freeze Sculpture Park. Oh yeah. Um, and of course, you've got the May Gallery still. You've got Flowers Gallery still. You've got the Redfern Gallery still, showing amazing work too. And, and you've got Waddington Custot as well. Mm. You know, I mean, so it's it's kind of a good mix of old and old and new and different generations.
1: And also Cork Street galleries are presenting during Freeze Week as kind of special programme where they're actually, um, alongside all the permanent galleries, they're actually turning the street into a kind of a site-specific location for special installations. And I think Gina Fishley's got a work called Ravenous and, sorry, Ravenous and Predatory oh, yes, that's hanging... Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hanging across Cork
2: Street like bunting. Well, these are great big banners hanging down Cork Street of kind of, you know, a squirrel clutching a nut in its slightly kind of weird yeah. little paws really close up. A bird with... It's all nature, basically. Nature being a bit unattractive, but in a kind of fascinating way. I mean, the surrealists would were thoroughly approved of it. When you think Merritt Mer- Oppenheim's fur teacup and saucer got its mm. debut in, um, in, in the corner, you know, there's now this sort of weird... And there's a bird with all worms hanging out of its beak not what you'd normally see on kind of, you know, promotional banners hanging down there. And isn't there some AR stuff as well? As- yeah, Russ was telling me about that. Earlier. Yes. Yeah,
0: is- I mean, I, I, it's it, Hedra, AR. So it's Hedra was, is the island that every year has like an art exhibition, doesn't it? Yeah. Is it associated with that?
2: I, I don't think so. I I'm. It could. I think it's more like Hydra, Hydra, the many-headed Hydra. I think it's the, the the mythological beastie with all those horrible heads, snaky heads with snappy yes. snappy teeth on the end. It's the lovely Daniel Birnbaum is curating it, and he's done a Venice Biennale. He used to be the director of Moderna Museet in Stockholm. He's a really smart man, and there's some extraordinary things. Again, the surrealist were thoroughly approved. Julie Curtis. If you do, if you do that clicky thing on your phone, suddenly mm. you know you're looking at you're looking at the you've got your camera and you're looking at Cork Street, and on your camera suddenly pops up this naked woman, which is Julie Curtis, the artist herself, kind of wandering around in the muse. So it's all very uncanny and strange, and you follow it all on your phone. And they all pop up. And there's also all sorts of other kind of strange things happening. But I think the Cyrillus, I mean, the old sexist, misogynist old surrealists would have particularly liked a gorgeous naked girl. At least it's the artist herself. I did say to Daniel, I think we've had enough naked women in art for the time being. But... Um, he laughed indulgently at that.
1: <laughs> and there's also um, Thomas Saraceno's part of it. And it, I think Daniel's right. linked with acute art, isn't he? And they, th- he the is. interesting thing about this, this kind of augment- augmented reality, is the idea of how like innovative that is in the location of Cork Street. You know, it's a kind of very contemporary version of kind of something quite radical in a way.
2: I couldn't agree more, Rob. It's quite nice to kind of, I quite I almost see these new AR works that come popping up inside. It's a bit like the kind of ghosts of Cork Street's sort of mad past. And it's id, you know, the women, and there's some strange flowers, I think, in one of them and these sort of this weird stuff happening on Cork Street again.
1: Mm, And for those who want to see that, it's called Electronic Hedra Prelude is the title of that AR exhibition.
0: Yeah. And Gene officially also studied at the Royal Academy. So ah. in some ways, it's quite good that there's that's, a correlation there.
2: Oh, I like that. I didn't know that. Yes, but it's, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, And also the Royal Academy is now, I mean, let's not forget the Royal Academy is the only art school in the UK where nobody gets charged any fees. You know, yes, it's a very small art school and it's still in the centre of the Royal Academy. So we might mm. think, oh, there's the summer show. In fact, it's the, it's the autumn show now, isn't it, that's showing? But that's really good because Yinka Shonibare is curating it. And it's incredibly diverse. It's got work by people who haven't been trained as artists. So the Academy is pretty radical these days as, well, yeah, as totally. well as being steeped in tradition it's you know really what louisa there's time. actually
1: a free art school in margate now open school east because you, you can do a master's program there now just like the Royal Beg Academy, your yeah, pardon, yes but i'm just saying so it's, the in central london yes yeah <laughs> and, one, and also one, one of
2: the kind of ones that gives sort of official you know diplomas yeah, and all that totally. stuff no art school east is absolutely brilliant but you yeah. know i love the fact that there are these students right in the middle of mayfair making a horrible mess in their studios you know it's, it's brilliant i love it yeah
0: so why should people get down to Cork Street then to summarize, Louisa? What, what what is the big thing to see?
2: It's a very feel? small street with an awful lot in it. So whatever your shtick is, whatever your taste is, you will find something old, something new, something extraordinary. And it's the best time to go now because free everyone's putting on their best bib and tucker for Freeze Art Fair. So, you know, everyone's doing their stuff. Freeze itself is there. You know, I can guarantee you'll find something that rocks your boat if you go down there. Yeah, nice I right.
1: think from now until the seventeenth of October, there's a lot of special events happening there. Yeah. and I think seeing Jean officially's um, banners, I love the idea of public art. Anyway, yeah. it's something that we hold dear to our heart here at Talk Art, and I think you know, free art for everyone. And you can see these exhibitions for free. You yes. don't need to pay. You haven't and got that's to That's what them. I love about private galleries. Yeah, and and I think the AR exhibition sounds so exciting and interactive and kind of like a real experience. It's something to. And you know, anybody quite different with a smartphone
2: can do it. You know, you just yeah, go there, you yeah, click, yeah. you log on, and weird stuff starts happening you know love that
1: yes
0: so we're going to ask you some quick questions which we do on all talk art episodes louisa oh god i Are, forgot we, about you, those yeah. you have been on before <laughs> but if you could do an art heist and I don't know if you want to make it freeze fair or you want to make it surrealism or cork street or related. If you, cork street, <laughs> street related if you want to get a cork street related art heist what would it be and why
2: okay i completely forgot i was gonna get asked this question but as i cited <laughs> it um I would like to heist, as it got at one of its earliest, if not its first airings at the International Surrealist Exhibition, I would like to heist Merritt Oppenheim's Fur Teacup and Saucer. Ooh, what was that to, to for people who don't know what that is? It a teacup and saucer covered entirely in fur. And it's the most pervy idea because imagine drinking, it all gets a bit kind of sexual and a bit kind of disconcerting. If you think about drinking a hot cup of tea from a mm, teacup, tea it's yeah. just a really disquieting, surrealist object. It plays with all your kind of subconscious. It's really simple, but it's utterly brilliant and utterly female in the most wicked way.
0: Love that. Uh, The other question
2: question we ask every guest is what is your
1: favorite color? I don't know if there's a color that you remember from Cork Street or something. (laughs)
2: It's a bit grey i think <laughs> tarmac tarmac matt black matt black. Um, no I, it depends i think i said this last time it depends completely on my mood what my what my favourite colour is but um i think you know as as i'm sure he, i'm not sure he did do anything on cork street but i know he would have shown in cork street at some point probably at the mayor gallery i'm gonna go for eve klein the great french artist Ooh. who actually who actually patent a colour blue yves klein international blue it's the most Gorgeous, rich, brilliant, pigmenty, bright blue, and I'm sure there's there's been a bit of Eve Klein international blues sloshing around in Cork Street over the centuries and over the totally. years What is Love that. what
0: is the best advice you have ever received when it comes to being an art critic or an a uh, contributing editor, or art newspaper like as an art editor? What is the best thing that you've ever been given?
2: Oh God, you really are chucking about me tonight this afternoon um well. I don't know whether whether anyone's ever actually given it to me, but I give it to people and give it to myself, is that, Mm. you know... You really do have to follow your guts and your instincts. Andre Breton, let's keep a Surrealist theme. Andre <laughs> Breton, the big Pope of Surrealism, talked about in front of a great work of art, you feel a cold wind brushing the temple, which I love, and I think that kind of frisson. Now you may have to then explain why you feel like you do. You may have to, you know, get your head round what it is that brushes your temple, what gives you that shudder, that frisson, when something really rocks your boat. But don't be afraid of your own instincts. You know, don't let other people sway you around. Listen, learn. You might change your mind. You can do, you know, you could do a U-turn, but let that cold wind brush your temple. Mm. Love that.
0: Adore that. Adore you, Louisa.
2: (laughs) You're the best. I love you. Lots of love. Let's throw (laughs) the love back and forth. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. Well, everyone listening, 1925 to 2020 there is so much history there and we're making new history right now. So you can in 2021. join it in 2021. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, and you can visit corkstreetgalleries.com and you can look up all the history there of those years that I mentioned. But obviously we're in 2021 now, so it's time to, um, <laughs> time to, to create... Future to create new new experiences.
0: Yes. Um, Are you on Instagram, Louisa?
2: Oh, don't, my Instagram account's just been hacked. Can what? I please oh my shout? Gosh. Can I shout out to fury of Instagram themselves. There was no way I could retrieve it. So my old at Lou Buck account just sits there, but I can't get in. But I have a new one, which is louisa.buck.one. I've got to start from scratch, as from last ah. week. And it wasn't to do with the outage. It's pre-outage. But if anybody who works at Instagram is out there, there is you no know, personal means of doing it it's all algorithms it's faceless they could you know easily what? We get it are back gonna, to me.
1: we well, are going to talk to our agents for you because oh, I know that please. one of our agents is close with someone on Instagram maybe they could help oh never know.
2: please 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 but I've got a new one up and running but the old one it's it's six seven years of tw- of daily posts I'm heartbroken Oh. So sorry about that. You shouldn't have asked that question. No, 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 no. We should. We, we need should, to we need sure. start a campaign to free <laughs> yes.
1: your Instagram. Get free Louisa my... back It's still on there. Thank Instagram. God no
2: one's doing anything horrible with it. They asked me for yeah. money to unblock it. and Of course, I just oh blocked my... them. Um, oh my but God. but it's, it's sitting there, the account. But it's not mine anymore. All the, you know, the password's been changed. The usernames, been, you know. So oh. it sits there. It looks like mine. What's so frustrating is it looks like my account, but it, I can't get into it. It's like it's your account or it's somebody else's account.
1: Well, you know what? Well, our friendship group has been trying to free Britney, and I think it looks free like she's getting, she's getting free. So now free we're going Louisa. to free Louisa's no, <laughs> <the old> Instagram <laughs> account. I'm actually seriously going to get onto There's a ring to that episode. as well, isn't there? <laughs> <Yeah>. Loving <laughs> yes. it. Um, well, everyone get out there, see some art, enjoy Freeze Week. Um, it does extend past the art fair itself and you can even go to Regent's Park and see the, um, see free the sculptures sculpture. there. There's yep. so much going on in London and, you know, while we can go out, go out and enjoy yes. it.
0: yes. Until next time, everyone, uh, be happy and Thanks lots of listening. love. All right, see you we'll then. We'll be back very
1: soon. Bye.
2: Bye, 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 Louisa. bye Louisa. Bye. Bye. Thank, Thank you.